0: Welcome back to the Rated Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, Rated Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, I'm speaking with Dr. David Allen, Plato Investment Management's co-head of research, head of long-short strategies, and portfolio manager of the Plato Global Alpha Fund. For Keen Rugby fans out there, you may be familiar with David as he was a professional rugby player and is currently the president of the Eastern Suburbs Rugby Club. For me, I enjoyed hearing David explain their unique structure and how the fund achieves a high alpha return without having a highly concentrated portfolio, like a 2020 portfolio. There's something like 750 companies um, interchangeably in the uh, strategy at any one given time, long and short, uh, which is quite remarkable. He also unpacks the red flag process, which he used and gives a whole lot of examples, which is incredibly interesting. And also the return on the fund has generated roughly 8.5% over the MSCI World Index since inception. Before we get into the ROCKcast, I'd also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this ROCKcast and to keep your feedback coming. If there's any other guests you'd like to have on, uh, any specific fund managers or any particular thematic uh, with current markets, uh, please reach out to me at mgatty at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. David Allen, welcome to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: Why don't we kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into financial markets?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So, I guess. Uh I, uh, I actually originally went over, um, right after university, went over to play, uh, play footy overseas, and then uh, within the first year I was playing over in Ireland, I, I injured my neck, and that was kind of the, the end of my, my footy career. And But it's probably, probably a good thing because uh, I think uh, I ended up being a better fund manager than I was a, a rugby player. And uh, went over to London, did the typical rite of passage where you – yeah, uh, I, mean, I thought I'd, I'd just be there for a couple of years, as uh, as Aussies like to do. Uh, but uh, in the end, I was there for 15 years, so it was uh, it was a, a great stint, and I was incredibly lucky. I had some amazing mentors and incredible uh, experiences uh, over that time. Uh, and you know, like life, uh, you know, you, you need a bit of luck, right? And uh, within two weeks, I had a job uh, at JP Morgan Asset Management, which uh, over in the US and Europe, obviously, is a uh, is a hugely uh, important group. And uh, that was a group that's really on the rise. When we started, we had 18 billion euros under management and uh, we reached a peak of 75 billion. So I was very much right place at the right time. I had some great mentors and uh, and learned a, a hell of a lot. Uh, you know, went through the sort of end of the tech bubble to the, the GFC through Brexit, sovereign debt crisis. So lots of great experiences there where you learn you know, more in two weeks than you do in two years. So, you yeah, know, that was a you know, really exciting time of my life for sure. And then uh, I guess I uh, met an Aussie girl and, uh, you know, she was a little bit sick of the weather, which is fair enough. We wanted to come back and start a family and that's exactly what we did. So I've been back at Plato um, in Australia for five years now and uh, really enjoying that uh, and, uh, you know, running some long short strategies here, which is, has been really exciting.
0: Gotta love Europe, must say.
1: Hundred percent beautiful.
0: Hundred um, percent. well, why don't you shine some light on um, what exactly is Plato Investment Management? You know the philosophy, of the investing process. And uh, when we were chatting um, the other day, you mentioned that essentially uh, the strategy is very similar. The Alpha strategy is very similar to what you were doing over in, in the UK. I was just curious. You know, how's it similar and how's it different?
1: Yeah, so, so for people who don't know Plato, there's uh, 11 billion under management and uh, the process, uh, it's deeply fundamental in nature. But that said, we we extensively use uh, data and systems and code to, to really drag the, the role of the traditional bottom-up fundamental manager kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So I think gone are the days where you've got a few mates who are brokers that you know, feed you some tips and then you put the tips on and go out for beers after lunch. Uh, you know, our, our process has is, is, been developed over a 20-year period and has has huge similarities to what I was doing at, at JP and Morgan. Uh, you know, we, we did, uh, when I joined Plato, we did a drains up of the investment process here and I brought together all of my learnings over the years, synthesized that with the, the best uh, of the, the Plato investment edge and and more recently, we brought in some fantastic guys from the Macquarie um, Hedge Fund Group. Now, that was a really successful group. They were um, generating uh, over $100 million, uh, profit a year, and uh, we've brought um, a handful of those really top uh, global investors, long-short investors specifically, into our group and you know, bringing together the, the best ideas and the best thoughts from all, all those uh, areas. The, the process, if you look at it, it's... It's pretty, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm a big believer that um, there's two things that are really difficult to do in markets. One is market timing, um, the second is dial timing. You know, value shot the lights out last year, but who would have thought we'd be sitting here in October and uh, that growth had gone phenomenally well? You had this AI frenzy, NASDAQ had gone through the roof in an environment where rates were ratcheting up so aggressively. Style timing is, is very, very difficult to consistently get right. So we're very much of the philosophy that at all times you want the, some fantastic value companies, some fantastic growth companies and some fantastic quality companies. And only by doing so can you give that all-weather performance um, that's uh, immune um, to a certain extent to, to changes in inflation and interest rates that are, are largely hard to predict and out of your control. Um, so that, that's the first thing, you know, really striving for for all-weather uh, investment performance. You know, the, the strategy since launch, I think, has outperformed in 80%, uh, sorry, 88% of rolling quarters. Uh, the other really distinctive thing about our investment uh, process, Murdoch, is is the red flags. You know, lots of people talk about value, growth, quality, uh, but the red flags is something that it, is pretty distinctive. but uh, We've actually got 130 different red flags that we look at before we make any investment, either on the long side or on the short side. Uh, it's a, it's a bit corny, uh, but Buffett was always fond of saying that there's only two things you need to know investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And that's really what the red flags process is all about, making sure there's no landmines lurking on the long side of our portfolio. And... Uh, but also identifying companies that are great shorting opportunities that we really uh, expect to underperform uh, materially. And it is very interesting, like the strategy we're talking about today, it's a 150-50 strategy, so it's 150% long and 50% short. Critically, the net exposure to the market is always 100%. So this will rise and fall like a traditional long-only equity funding competes in that Morningstar uh, bucket. Uh, but the, the red flags is something that that's it's actually our most potent alpha signal. The the genesis of this was actually I was invested in uh, back in two thousand and fourteen a Spanish tech company. This this company it, it had gone up forty five fold since uh, we held it. So it was a phenomenal uh, investment for us. But uh, the Spanish prime minister was coming out and hailing this this tech company. They they did public Wi Fi as uh, the, the next unicorn in Europe and. Sure enough, after you get a kiss of death, of like that, from a politician, then we should have known there is time to sell uh, the stock. price it was uncovered as a huge accounting fraud, the stock price goes to zero. CEO gets indicted, and we said, damn. Well, you know, let's make damn sure it's okay to make mistakes, but let's make damn sure we, do. we don't make that same mistake twice. So we uh, we did a post mortem and said, okay, what do we miss? And we missed a couple of things that were pretty straightforward. Uh, the first one, they were using an auditor that nobody else was using. Okay. The second thing is they're paying that auditor a really, really small amount, only 0.02% of revenue. Typical for a company like this, you'd expect around 7%. So being evidence-based investors, we said, okay, let's identify every company we can over the last decade across 10 different countries, so tens of thousands of companies, that have a really obscure auditor. And sure enough, those companies do go on to be more risky and often do blow up. Uh, So on average, you do want to stay away from those companies. And there's countless examples where, you know, from Bernie Madoff using his his uncle up in Queens to do the books, um, where um, the quality of those service providers is is really important. Adani, a, a recent one where they had a very junior auditing firm that didn't have the capability to deal with the company of that complexity and the web of transactions. So really, uh, that, that was the, the, the first red flag. And over the years, we've built up this toolkit. So there's now 130. So we looked at Enron, the poster trials for special purpose vehicles and you know, related party transactions that are present in pretty much every accounting manipulation that you see. We look at the history of all the directors of companies we invest in—have they been involved in a, a corporate failure in the past? What are the uh, the directors doing with their own money? Are they are they suddenly selling equity in the, in the companies? Um, we look at uh, you know what's the hedge fund the hedge fund community saying? Do they have some big short positions in, in names? Maybe they know something that, that, that we don't know. The interesting thing is each one of these red flags in isolation is not actually that powerful. It might give you a 51% edge, so not much better than a coin toss. And and often, you know, with with something that's low um, edge like that, you might just ignore it and just move on and just get on with the investment anyway. But what you find when you add together this very large group of eclectic, different red flags across governance, forensic accounting, financial distress, uh, that the whole is much, much greater than the sum of the parts. And you get uh, a situation where if a company has eight or more red flags, they tend to underperform the market by about 20% a year. And that's been a big driver of our alpha today, where we've actually made 90% of the alpha on on the short side. So... Investment well, let's
0: let's talk about that alpha, because the thing I found really quite interesting about your approach and your strategy is, uh, I, I think I was on your website and it was a comment or an article made, which is you have the return is quite uh, good, and normally essentially a return associated with that type of portfolio is a concentrated portfolio, like 20 stocks, right? But how many uh, holdings are in the portfolio?
1: Yes, yeah, see, so, so this will probably surprise you. Uh, like, even though we've managed to outperform the, the index by um, almost 9% per year after fees, we actually have a lot of holdings in the portfolio. There's about 500 names long and about 250 short. Okay, so it's a big. So
0: 500 names long, 250 oh. short. And what's been the average return?
1: So the, the average return uh, of the portfolio overall has been about 9% above the MSCI World benchmark since launch. So people, they, they struggle to get their head around it. They go, how does, it, how does that make sense? You know, you, you're so diversified. Um, but the reality is that th- there's lots of, There's no one right way to, to make outsized returns. Like Buffett's done it for a number of years using a very concentrated portfolio. Um, at one end of the spectrum, but the most successful hedge fund of all time, Renaissance, generated 35% returns uh, after fees for almost 30 years. They've got thousands of positions in their portfolios. So there's no one right or wrong way. We tend to be more diversified. Uh, A lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the concept of active share, so that's how different I am from the benchmark, which is the kind of important thing. Yeah, our active shares about 100%, so that's um, similar even more than the active shares you get with your 20 stock um, all-in portfolio. Uh, the other, so why are we quite diversified? Well, it's, it's certainly not by accident. Uh, the, a top quartile fund manager, when you look at it statistically, uh, we only get 55% of our stock picks right. It's pretty depressing, right? You spend your lifetime doing it and you're not much better than a coin toss, right? And but uh, our models and our process, we think we can get in the high fifties, almost sixty percent. But even so, we're getting four out of ten wrong. So if we have a twenty-stock portfolio, you can easily be, even if you're skillful, you can be unlucky and underperform. So a, a good analogy, if you like, is uh, is uh, the roulette the roulette wheel where the house has a tiny has a pretty small edge, right? Um, but because players are playing it thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, okay, law of large numbers, they guarantee the house is guaranteed to come out on the right side of that, even though they have a very small edge, okay. So the well, I don't don't want to you know compare us to gambling here, unless we are the house, of course. Uh, you if you're if your edge isn't that. Large and no one's edge is that large because markets are quite efficient. You do want to um, be diversified to ensure that you just um, don't have unlucky periods of blow your performance.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And the other thing which I wouldn't mind understanding is it's a lot of direct holdings, um, but are they defined they sometimes concentrate in a particular sector of uh, the market or
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so like,
0: as, as an example, right, you know, AI has been moving, you know, yeah. would you potentially allocate 5 or 10% of the portfolio to AI, but that might encompass, you know, 10, 20 share uh, direct companies?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, we, we absolutely do that. Uh, you know, whereas a traditional 20 stock portfolio might have two or three thematics in the portfolio, you know, that are really driving things you yeah, we might have 50 thematics, 50 micro thematics, and AI would be one of them, and we've held NVIDIA and Broadcom and ASML uh, as part of that thematic. Uh, but we we certainly don't want to go all in on on any one investment trend because um, I, I just don't think that's good uh, good risk management. You saw, you know, the Cathie Wood ARC funds that were all in and then they had horrific drawdowns Uh Uh, I think investors have moved on from wanting something that's super concentrated, that's going to be up 30%, down 30%, you know, they want a a bit of a more of a consistent journey. Uh, A a nice sort of simple analogy that I just heard for the first time the other day actually was uh, um, the great uh, Don Bradman, Uh, how many sixes he hit in his career and I don't know if you're, you're a cricket fan but, you know, he, he hit um, only four or five sixes in his entire career. Everyone's
0: fact, a Bradman fan, even if you don't like cricket, you're a Bradman fan. Well,
1: well, well that's right. That's right. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty extraordinary. The the batsman with the greatest average of all time, almost a hundred, barely hit any sixes. So how do you square that? Well, his philosophy is you don't get out if uh you only hit the ball on the ground looking for singles and and that's more our approach rather than go all in on the big kill you know it's got to be all in you know this biotech stock or whatever um you know prefer to you know express lots and lots of different views uh, in the the portfolio and um if you if you hug the index that's obviously you're never going to generate any alpha but we are nothing like the index and what we hold in the portfolio and that's what allows us to generate those, those really uh robust returns.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned like uh, funds like Kathy Wood. I'd actually say that um, there's no one hard, fast way for fund managers to operate. And I kind of respect what fund managers uh, like Kathy Wood or, you know, some advi- uh, funds that have a one specific thematic because it's literally that it rises and falls depending on macroeconomics. Like they can't control. All they can do is pick the best internally at that time and then risk manage accordingly. But, The reason, but they all have their place. So, you know, we've seen what's happened with gas, commodities, you know, all different areas. But the reason why it's good to talk to yourself, David, is a lot of uh, people out there in the market are looking for, I would classify as your fund as a stable, uh, solid entity, which you can kind of just hold, you know, uh, consistently, right? Meanwhile, you have these satellites where essentially you are, uh, some investors are looking to take positions and, you know, Take a bet or a view on a particular thematic for a period of time based on you know fiscal and and macroeconomic policy, which is fine in itself because there is a level of volatility we haven't seen for the past seven years for like fifty years, so it's quite interesting. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like uh, if if, uh, if you're a savvy investor and you um, and you can risk manage well, then yeah, by all means, investing in different uh, you know thematics uh, you know is absolutely a way that. Uh, that that you can add value. Uh, that timing, as as with everything, is 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 all important. Um, there's an interesting study that came out of Journal of Portfolio Management uh, this year, which you know one of the preeminent journals, and they did a study in the U.S. and said that every time a new thematic ETF is launched, so think of oh, like
0: yeah
1: a robotics ETF or infrastructure ETF or um, lithium. Batteries. ETF, batteries, et cetera. So, what they did, a very, very simple study, but it was quite instructive, I think. They said, okay, if you'd done nothing but um, every time a new thematic ETF has been launched, on the data launch, you buy it. That's your investment strategy, okay? And then you hold it for um, a period after that. On average, uh, though, that strategy underperforms the market. By 20%, so just rather than just going into like the S and P 500, right, underperforms the S and P 500 by 20% over a five-year holding period, right? And why is that? Well, that's
0: quite remarkable.
1: It is, it's really remarkable, and uh, we replicated the study for Australia. We looked at all of the thematic ETFs in Australia, and we found that the numbers are even worse. That the if you just bought every thematic ETF, you the day it launched then you underperform the ASX 300 by 20% over the first 12 months. So more extreme. So this is incredible. Why is this the case? Well, thematic ETFs, when are they launched? They're launched when public excitement about a theme is at its peak. Your Uber driver is talking to you about crypto or, you know, or or batteries or lithium or marijuana, ETFs. That's right when the valuations are really, really stretched and it's when a lot of the investors can jump in. But uh, that's just reverting to my point about timing. You know, absolutely a place for those sort of thematics, but, uh, you know, you just could be very careful about when you're jumping into that.
0: Speak to your uh, advisor and professional.
1: <laughs>
0: Seek counsel.
1: Seek counsel. Uh, you know,
0: and always, always uh, you know, invest within your means and all that as well. Uh, but, yeah, yeah let's, let's get um, into the mechanics. Um, I, I really do like how everything's structured. Do you mind letting everyone know how – structured the fund um uh you know the alignment you know just give everyone a bit of an overview of how it all operates the
1: yeah mechanics. Sure. The structure is uh quite simply it's, it's a 150 50 fund so that means that uh it's it's a lot more you know complicated than it sense. all that means is you've got 50 percent more firepower because you're 150% long, 50% more, firepower for few, your attractive ideas, okay, that you really like, that juices up the returns, right? But you've also got this 50% short component to generate alpha on, on the short side. So you've got these almost like these two different alpha engines that can add um, into the portfolio. Sometimes the longs are driving all of the alpha and periods of, you know free money like you talked about before it's great for the longs but in periods like this where interest rates have ratcheted up very very aggressively then it's a great environment for shorting and you know 80 or even 90 percent of our has come from the shorts and, and a lot in australia actually australia had names like BrainChip, chip for example they had a, a market cap of two or three billion not so long ago had 23 red flags on our investment process um, we were short and uh, subsequently they fall, I think, 80 90% off their peak. Uh, this is a company that, with such a huge market cap, um, they've got less revenue than some cafes. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's purely based on speculation, hype, and hope. Um, so when we see companies like that, then they're great opportunities for us to make alpha uh, on the short side and, you know going back a ways I still remember Volkswagen had seventeen red flags, which most companies only have one or two. So to have seventeen is huge, and that was before diesel Dieselgate. So they're an incredible tool for identifying which companies are vulnerable and could end up blowing up, and and that you definitely want to avoid, and and hopefully want to have a, a small short position. Interestingly, there's in Australia there's quite a lot of really good Australians and. Um, uh, 130-30 strategies, you know, which are similar to almost identical to what we're talking about here. There's the perpetual share plus fund that uh, uh Booty runs, there's the Tribeca funds, there's the Oswald funds, there's all billion dollar funds. Uh, but in the global space in Australia, global one thirty-thirty or one fifty-fifty, there's virtually nothing. Um so there's uh it's a great opportunity to be able to generate alpha because I fundamentally believe that um this setup, this structure where you're 150 long, 50 short, it, uh, um, it, it really magnifies your, your ability to generate great returns. And, uh, you know, a traditional long-only fund that doesn't have that additional juice on the longs or the ability to generate off and it's almost like going to war with a water pistol. It's hard yucca. This is if you're, if you're a skilled manager who can pick longs and shorts, then you will generate much better returns in uh in this type of uh one fifty fifty structure. They're massively popular in Europe, massively popular uh in the US, but uh um not as well known in Australia.
0: Yeah, no, uh, we can definitely see the advantages uh, in this uh, the volatile economy we're currently in right now. Um, on that point, I would love to hear your thoughts on, uh, we have had quite a big recovery, I suppose, being held up by the Magnificent Seven. Uh, but I'm reading everywhere, uh, there's this underbelly current, what's happening with the bond market, and then essentially the rising inflation, uh, the impact on commercial debt. Um, they're starting to say they're rolling over the contracts, what, 2024 through to 2028, You know, CBD, uh, they're saying occupancy is down, you know, and the the roll-on impact. And then I think someone commented that the chart looks very similar to 1987 the other day on LinkedIn. I'm just very curious um, uh, since you cover – you technically have a go-anywhere strategy, right? So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on where we are and what do you believe is around the corner.
1: Yeah, like uh, in terms of the macro, like uh, I think – the increasing rate environment is really going to expose a lot of companies. The default cycle is really kicking into to gear and, uh, you know, China has got a huge amount of, of debt and isn't going to be able to just uh, pump liquidity to get out of its problems as easily as as it's done uh, in the past. So I think it's going to be harder to uh, for many, many companies. And if you remember, like, you know, going back to Japan in the 1990s, the, this phrase was called zombie companies. They're companies that yeah. for year after year, they can't even generate enough cash flow to pay their, their interest bills. But um, I sort of kept on life support. And there, there's, there was a lot of that record number of zombie companies in Australia um, in particular. And when rates jack up, um, these companies can no longer that have often grown by acquisition never really made um, positive operating cash flow. These companies can get torched, and uh, so it, it's it's a great environment uh, for for shorting. It, it means that um, high rates obviously is tends to be a negative for growth. Although we saw growth do well this year when interest rates have, have gone up. Uh, but it comes back to you've got to have like some great value names in the portfolio as well because if, if rates go up and growth suffers, you don't want to be like an all-out growth manager. And we've seen this. with so many of these growth star managers who have been hammered over the last couple of years, concentrated, high growth, high beta portfolios. So we've got some great value names in the portfolio. So you know, one of my favourites that's been a, a great investment for us is, is BMW. So BMW um, they trade at six and a half times next year's earnings, okay? And they've got a, a lot of pent up uh, demand uh, and people say, oh, and the long-term PE for the for BMW going back 30 years is 12, okay? So they're trading at half the price of that they normally do. And people say, well, you know, they're, they're not growing very fast, you know, they're not like a, a Tesla uh, that's uh, growing 35% a year for their, their, their revenues. Well, BMW, from a lower base, is actually growing their EV revenue at 100% year. If they wanted to be, they could be fully electric in five or so years. So, uh, I think it, you know that's a much safer investment. A margin of safety is there relative to Tesla at 72. Don't get me wrong, Tesla's a great company, great cars, uh, but so much of uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a great value at at this point. You know, there's there's not much margin for error baked into to that stock price. So having you know, in, in this macro environment we're going into, you know, having the shorts and the red flags allows us to drive alpha because we may not get that, those returns to equity markets in general just trending upwards. So you need to be able to generate alpha through something else such as the short, but you also need to be in companies that do tend to do better in rising rate environments like the, the value names like BMW.
0: What do you think is happening with um, the banks in Australia?
1: Uh, like it, it, it's it's not my specialty. Um, like the the banks are, you know, the in terms of how well sort of regulated and capitalised. Like I, I was obviously in Europe during the GOC and saw a lot of very poorly run and managed banks uh, over there that were incredibly leveraged. Uh, Australia, I think, is. Uh, is, is much safer in terms of uh, of their books, and uh, you know it's not something that uh, that keep. It's not one of the things that that keeps me uh, keeps me awake at night. Uh, again, Australia is only a couple of percent of our investment universe, so it's not a, a massive area for focus. Like we're, we're not long or short any of the Aussie banks.
0: Yeah, right. So, uh, oh, actually, uh, the other day, um, uh, Qantas popped up. It was quite talked about so i'm just curious like with the red flags system did that pop up on the radar at all
1: yeah it did actually so qantas i think uh off the top of my head has seven red flags so it's not insignificant right so there's the red flags uh were um they've got uh um like obviously ceo and cfo just leaving two red flags um that uh um you know can mean nothing but can um can be problematic for some companies. We also saw um, one of the alternative data sources we use looks at employee uh, morale and satisfaction because the empirical evidence shows that that's actually correlated with future company performance. And no surprises here, like out of the 20 global listed airline stocks, Qantas is right down the very bottom in terms of employee morale and the trend of that morale and satisfaction with, uh, with management. Uh, so that that's a a key red flag. Carbon their carbon emissions is is obviously poor, but that's not sort of specific to Qantas. Pretty much all their lines have very poor carbon uh, ratings. Uh, what what else is there? Re- remuneration structures totally out of whack with uh, with uh, brand value, if you like performance. Uh, so there are plenty plenty of red flags there. Um, but against that, you know the you know, I, I wouldn't be going short Qantas. Like Qantas have, uh, you know, 62% market share, you know, bringing Jetstar into it, um, you know, they're, they're, they're massively on the nose. Like, uh, don't get me, I'm, I'm, I'm no fan of, of, uh, of Qantas. You know, they left me sitting with my family at Waikiki Beach when they lost all my bags in my tracksuit pants that I worn on the plane. Um, so like, I'm, I'm definitely no fan, but do I believe that they can reset And it's such a part of the global sort of uh, identity that uh, I think that that they will be able to get it right. And the valuation multiple is so undemanding at the moment, Um, like it's extreme. It's in the, you know, top 5% cheapest that it's ever been sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, like it will have another leg down, but I, I think Longer term, it's still going to be a good investment
0: for most people. Yeah, it's just very interesting to hear your opinion there because, like, there's red flags, yeah. but, you know, someone would say that the you know, the business is actually quite robust for what's happened, even though there's a whole lot of headline, not so great headlines, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, Qantas, I think airlines in general all have a tendency to – uh for someone in the lurch uh, my favorite thing i laughed my head off when i was traveling through europe and i hopped on a delta flight and someone goes you know what delta stands for i go what he goes don't expect luggage to arrive <laughs> i'm like well there's a reputation yeah
1: yeah well there you go there you go and uh, you know buffett has a you know this sort of uh stick that he likes to roll off that um you know if uh, the best thing that uh, they could have done for capitalism uh, when they had the maiden flight of kitty hawk you know the Uh, You know, back in the day, the first ever, you know, flight, they could have burned that plane down because the amount of money that airlines have torched over the years is is (laughs) extraordinary. So, yeah, airlines on average, like they're not a favorite of ours, but everything has a price. If something gets sufficiently cheap, it's still interesting.
0: Well, um, look, I love asking this question, you know, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of the bed in the morning? And specifically on what keeps you up at night, just as a fund manager, there's so many moving parts happening in the world. Like we just uh, heard uh, the conflict that's happening in Gaza right now, you know, Ukraine, and you know there are various conflicts around the world. Um, does that – what keeps you up at night? Um, yeah,
1: well, I've got, I've got like a two, uh, two-year-old and a four-year-old, so they're usually keeping me up at night. But, uh, you know, we just had uh, – Vomiting bug go through the whole household over the, the long weekend. So, uh, but if it's not that, uh, I, like we, we uh, are fundamental bottom up managers. Yeah, yeah we, we used a lot of uh, uh, quantitative analysis, but at our heart, uh, everything we do is fundamental, whether it's DCFs on companies, red flags. Uh, and I think the biggest shortcoming that fundamental managers have is uh, they get blindsided by the macro. They're they're reading footnotes on a Friday night in annual reports or corporate filings, and then suddenly, uh, you know, a big macro event comes out, like what were the the tragic uh, news we're seeing on our screens overnight in in Gaza, and uh, so we we're kind of a bit unusual. We probably spend twenty or thirty percent of our time on the risk management piece. Uh, Most fundamental managers, you know, that 99% picking stocks, they think it's all about picking stocks and you'll win or die by that. That's obviously critical, but, you know, you can easily screw up what should have been a good track record by suboptimal risk management. So we have, for example, 32 different stress tests we apply to the portfolio, um, all our portfolios every day. And these stress stress tests say that just like you stress test the bank, you stress test the portfolio. So if Credit spreads were to go out, or high yield credit spreads were to go out by 100%, 100 basis points. Um, what would be the impact on our PL over the day? If um, uh, for inflationary expectations were to, to drop, if Chinese property was to get hammered, if the oil price was to double, every scenario and stress you can imagine, and we're adding them all the time, we add into the portfolios because the macro is usually what what we'll undo for a, a fundamental bottom-up manager. Um, so that allows us to, you know, a, a, any big macro risk that appears in the portfolio, um, we tend to try and uh, limit. You know, like if, if the if the 100 PhDs at, at the Fed can't predict what, where inflation is going to go and interest rates are going to go, then I prefer to say, well, I can't either. Let's make sure the portfolios aren't unduly intrat- um influenced by what interest rates do. Um, so that that allows me to sleep a lot better at night is the long-winded answer.
0: No, look, I like it. Um, and look, that's the reason why I suppose we're having this conversation. I find your phone quite interesting, which is, you know, in a volatile world, stability, um, you know, can be quite attractive to a lot of people out there. And it's just a very interesting approach which you have um, on that stability side. And I still find it quite interesting that, you know, you're running a high, it's called a high alpha, it's called an alpha fund. Um, but you just have such a wide array of companies within the portfolio um, from diversification perspective. So it's been very interesting having you on and explaining how that works. Um, look, have I missed anything? Is there anything that anyone else loves to uh, ask you that, you know, comes to mind?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I no, I really, really enjoyed the chat and, uh... Yeah, just uh, you know every every day we're, we're working hard trying to fight for every every basis point and uh, and continue the, the strong performance that we had like our know, our up market captures about 1.25 so we're doing better in up markets down market captures 0.8 so we're preserving capital better in down markets and uh, you know we're, we're just trying to give a, a consistent journey so you know I can sleep at night and, and our investors can too so no, I really appreciate you having us on it's, uh it's been a great chat.
0: Uh, if people want to learn more, uh, what's the best way they can find you?
1: Yeah, sure sure thing. So, uh, like, uh, if they go to the the Plato Investment Management website, uh, there's information on the fund there. There's lots of insights. If you go to, to Livewire Markets, we've got lots of uh, articles that we've written on the fund and on uh, in investing. And obviously, if they want to invest uh, directly, then they can – do so through the the website or their financial advisor as well.
0: All right, David. Well, thank you very much for being on the road of change with York Wealth Management. It's been really, really interesting, and I really appreciate the insights you've shared.
1: Yeah, good man, Murdoch. Always a pleasure, mate, and I uh, hope to catch you uh, in person soon.
0: Absolutely. All right, see you later. Bye.
1: Thank you. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the Speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au